0: Welcome to Wood Talk, for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who like to use a lot of words, yet say nothing at all. Mark, Matt, and Shannon.
1: All right, welcome to Wood Talk, number 296, for February 22nd, 2016. On today's show, we have got a full house here. We're talking about trouble with a mission oak finish. There's no way I could do this with that noise. <laughs> she just came home. Did you, did you get him on? I slept adjust it or are you you, like keeping going that's just (laughs) Uh, okay
2: I just love the fact that it's not my dog making a noise for once
1: yeah well my dog is the quiet Doberman sitting in the other room it's Nicole's (laughs) dogs that are the problem today Uh, should I just keep that in the show (laughs) like uh, (laughs) do I redo it hey this is uh, this is podcasting nothing but professionalism Uh, let's just jump into it then Uh, on today's show we're talking about trouble with a mission oak finish sawtooth geometry grain direction in a panel finishing all sides of a board at once heating a workshop project stability when shipping across the country proper clamping pressure and our feature topic today how to do woodworking in America right All that and more coming up. But first, let's thank a special person, James Murchison. Thank you, James, for helping us out with the donation. And if you want to do that too, you can. Go to woodtalkshow.com, look over in the side column for those donation links and you could set up a one-time donation or a recurring donation of any amount or we have a couple of small suggested, you know, suggested amounts very small amounts that can help us uh, keep the show up and running and I can't tell you enough how much that helps us out in terms of offsetting server costs and making sure we can get more Harry's razors for Shannon. We keep um, Cremona's chain on his saw (laughs) well-oiled so he can keep cutting his slabs. These are important things. And by the way, Cremona, great picture, you and your family on top of the slabs. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. If you don't follow uh if you don't follow Matt on social media, you should. He posts some really cool pictures, but a really cute picture of him, his wife, and his uh his baby sitting on top of a stack of beautiful slabs. <laughs> it was it was awesome. Ultimate woodworker family photo, no doubt about oh, yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Those are right. fun
3: to stack too.
1: Yeah, it looks like it was fun. The
3: Stack's getting high. I'm stacking in my hand. Yeah. It's that's- thirty inches
1: wide, six feet long, two and a half inches thick. They're pretty heavy. That's how you stay so thin. That's what it is. Yeah, probably. <laughs> nice. All right, well, let's move into uh, what's on the bench. And uh, let's see, I guess I can go first here. I mentioned last time the panels for the bed. I've been kind of considering what my options are with that. Uh, without getting too nuts about it and you know, finding these crazy exotic panels, I just wanted something domestic species, but something with a little visual interest. So I went out to a Woodworker Source here in Phoenix and walked around. They had lots of decent stuff, but I didn't want to spend like $30 a board foot on you know some <laughs> crazy Australian timber just because it's got great grain. Um, so I, I walked around the warehouse and I saw this pile unmarked, but they usually have sales on like B stock stuff that really no one else wants, uh, and you can get it for a decent price. Well, this was unlabeled, but I'm pretty sure this was, was destined to be one of those sale uh, piles at some point. But it was a bunch of walnut that had all kinds of squirrely grain, some crotch grain. Uh, the boards did not look. Completely stable. Like <laughs> they might be problematic. Uh, definitely not the the you know A and B stuff that you normally see on the shelf. So I started to pour through that stack and I'm like, you know what? This is perfect because I don't need really, really big long pieces. If I could get some decent stable pieces with some cool visual interest with sapwood running in and out of it and uh, you know, some of those walnut boards, have you guys seen where you you get the purpley sort of colors, you get the browns and then you get the milky sapwood as it seems to almost be like traversing through the grain. It's not just a a quick defined layer. It's actually something that seems to go in and out as it goes across the board given it the sort of like I don't know, wavy, cool appearance. So I found a couple of those boards and I'm like, well, here's the cool thing. It's a four quarter stock, stupid phone. This is what happens when we record early. We had a little interruption there because my phone rang and I don't even know where I left off. Bottom line is, uh, these panels, I was able to resaw them. So if I saw something good in one piece, I can kind of split it down the middle, resaw it into two boards, book match them, and that then becomes my panel. Uh, and it actually looks really, really cool. So uh, I, I posted a couple of pictures on Facebook. It doesn't look all that great now because Walnut Unfinished is kind of ugly. And I've had a couple of people made comments like, oh, it's a little gray. It looks like uh, driftwood. And it, it, it's like, well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've never seen you've never seen walnut like raw with no finish on it because it kind of always looks grayish you know <laughs> so yeah that's social uh, media
3: i love that. isn't walnut it,
1: compared to
2: driftwood you've heard it here first. yep
1: that's the <laughs> only the best driftwood in my shop <laughs> that's for sure I got to start
2: selling my driftwood for more.
1: Yeah, so it was uh, good times. But anyway, so I'm I'm really happy with the panels. The bed actually is going to come together pretty quickly right now. I'm just in the final sanding and easing all the edges and rounding over and it's not going to be too uh, long of an assembly. It's basically what's a bed, a headboard, a footboard, and two rails that connect them. So this project is actually, surprisingly, almost done. Uh, And hopefully I'll be able to get that in the house pretty darn soon. So that's it for me. Uh, Matt, what about you? I am
3: finishing up the sofa table. I'll be doing the last bit of work today. All the fun little minor stuff. So I'll be attaching the top and like, you know, screwing in the drawer bottom. And that's about it, I think.
1: Nice. That's uh, that's a wrap. Are you you happy with the final result?
3: I am. I actually am. I think it turned out uh, really, really well.
1: Is there anything you could have done better? Um, let's see <laughs> Treat this like a job interview <laughs> What is your best asset Matt? Probably could have done it faster You know, That is a process though The guild project is a whole different level Of like explaining detail Not missing any points And these are, these are woodworkers who tend to be a little bit more uh, <laughs> Observant of what you're doing And you'll find out the hard way When you're like oh I didn't mention that one detail Then people will start to ask you those questions <laughs> You start to realize oh, okay well Maybe I should actually include those details in a video
3: yeah, that's the interesting thing now about editing too is like where do you find that line of how much detail is too mm-hmm. much detail yeah, that it, kind of thing it's interesting
1: it is tricky and I think you have to you know uh, the people listening to this show I mean you watch various different uh, folks on YouTube and different types of woodworkers and some people will go too far some people say you know too little and then some people are just right but then ask the, the person next to you and they've got a different viewpoint of what just the right amount of information is so it is it is difficult trying to please as many people as possible <laughs> uh, but from what I've seen so far you did a good job so uh, again anyone who's interested in that definitely check it out at the, the Wood Whisperer Guild sign up for Matt's uh, sofa table project and he will like it i will like it and you will like the video i promise
2: you had a picture matt of the table i think you had finished the base first and then you were moving on to the the top yeah and uh it is interesting because the top was unfinished and the base was finished <laughs> and there were, it looked like you put driftwood on the top totally why why would you use driftwood the when you thing have is made of driftwood you know like <laughs> cost
3: effectiveness you know? you've got
2: all that beautiful walnut and you use driftwood so weird it's more expensive you gotta have a place to set the family you can't (laughs) use the wood in the stack now that's right (laughs) that's the Cremona picnic table what are you talking about fantastic
3: it's raised it's a raised picnic table nice and the other thing I got going on is I picked up a a new bigger chainsaw
1: for my slabbing thing sweet got that going on is that from Wood Talk donations probably not it'd be pretty cool if it was I haven't sent you any money from that so (laughs) it probably can't be the check's still in the mail (laughs) check's in the mail keep looking for it Uh, very cool so what's what's the deal with the new chainsaw as like a more powerful unit more capacity what's what's the story
3: yeah it's i think these other saws are like the biggest saw ever made but this is pretty much the biggest saw that was ever made that was like people actually used to walk around with Mm -hmm. so they don't make them anymore i think this one was probably made in the 70s i think they stopped making them in the 80s but it's 137 cc's and it's like 30 pounds with nothing no bar no chain nothing in it Hmm. that's Pretty beastly. And the only thing I've done so far is just take it out to just cut a log, cut a round off a log real quick.
1: Yeah. And it was real quick. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. You know, I'm going to have to buy some. It have,
2: like, the exhaust headers and things like you see in Timber Sports, the sports <laughs> <drags> and stuff? <laughs> that it's would be awesome. Like that. no.
1: <laughs> That's the next project, man.
2: Get to it. It's got to have, like, flames and racing stripes on it. How long is the, uh, the, 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 the bar? Right? The bar that came with it is yeah. just thirty six inches, but I'm going to okay. put a five foot bar on it. <laughs> Damn.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, I got some big. I have a big log I got to cut up in the near future. I have a fifty two inch diameter red oak tree. Right on. So, nice. Got that to go on. So Very cool. You know, bigger stuff, bigger tools.
1: Got to do it. Got to upgrade sometimes. Cool, yep. Shen what, what what's going on in <laughs> your shop? Well,
2: uh, speaking of upgrade, I uh, I bought a horse butt sweet yes, finally yeah.
1: my life is uh definitely devoid of horse butts
2: yeah you know missing out mark uh, apparently I really apparently i i am a i'm a huge fan of stropping i always have a strop kind of on my bench while i'm working and i will strop you know 5 6 times on a chisel and before i ever go back to uh the sharpening stones but i've always been told i've always heard you know a horse butt leather is the best stuff out there and i'm like uh, okay you know I never really like Researched it, or you know, why is that good? You know, what the heck is horse butt leather? You know, I assume it comes from a horse's butt, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I would hope so. I just used, you know, a, a strip of leather that uh, I don't even know where I found it, but I've been using it for a long, long time. And uh I got a tip from, I think it was Caleb James. Yeah, it was Caleb. Uh, he makes um, molding planes and wooden planes and things like that. And he's like, you know, this stuff is it's truly amazing. He was kind of the same point of view. F- I was in, like, you know, whatever. Leather's a leather, but I uh, figure I'll just give it a shot. And he apparently had really good success with it. So I went to uh, Tools for Working Wood, and you can buy a strip of horse butt strop leather for 22 bucks I think.
3: And it's even stamped. Um,
2: so you know, yeah, it, it has a fancy horse butt stamp on it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the the biggest issue is is obviously it's a, it's a very um, – very hard leather. There's not... The, the issue that people have with a with strop sometimes is it will round over the edge. It's called dubbing. Um, and that's because the leather has more nap to it. It's like shag carpet leather. You know? And, <laughs> nice. and you want more of like the the vinyl flooring leather, <laughs> essentially. Um, and I, I gotta be honest, it makes a noticeable difference. Hmm. You know? Not that I've been doing anything terribly bad to my chisel. I mean, it certainly has been working. I'm a huge fan of the strop. But switching to this uh, leather, this horse butt stuff, um, it makes a huge difference really, really fast. So I'm a convert. I was I was impressed. It really allows you to get right down to the edge and you can actually see the wire edge coming off um, on the leather. So, yeah, it's pretty awesome stuff. So if you're ever wondering where do I get horse butt leather, um, Tools for Working Wood carries it.
1: Cool. I've never wondered that. But now, now I might wonder that. <laughs> now You might. I you, might know, you never know. All right, well, let's get into what's new. Got a couple things here to announce. This is kind of all my stuff that I put in here. Uh, Guild scholarships, something that we've wanted to do for a long time. Um, We know not everyone uh, wants to afford or can afford a a guild membership or the, the cost of the projects. So we had this idea, and a lot of people have mentioned it to us in the past that they'd love to see this, is some sort of a scholarship program where essentially people who submit an application are considered for the opportunity to get access for you know the year, which would be like three three projects in a year, and they would just get it for free as part of this program. Um, so if you are interested in something like that, there is a finite amount of time that you have to apply. I uh, can't remember the exact dates, but you can find everything at thewoodwhisperer.com slash scholarship, and Nicole is in charge of that. So if you have questions, she'll be able to help you out with it. But it's a cool opportunity for some people to get a free guild membership, which is kind of nice. Uh, so awesome. Yeah, it, it's cool. There's awesome. another thing we're doing that's already closed, so I probably should have mentioned it earlier. Uh, <laughs> we're doing a guild apprenticeship. And this is actually also, a, it's a little self-serving because it's nice to have some help when I'm doing guild projects. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the guild
2: <laughs> apprenticeship cameraman. Yeah, that's it.
1: <laughs> um, the thing is though, you guys know it's always a crap shoot. Like, everybody's different you know not everyone is going to be able to step into your shop and actually be an efficient worker so it is there's a liability aspect to it and it is also something that will definitely slow the process down so as much as I like to think I'm getting help the reality is the point of it is to actually give a guild member an opportunity to learn firsthand on a guild project and participate in the building of a guild project with me directly in person and then I'm guessing that by the end of the project we'll be working very efficiently together (laughs) just as it comes to a close so maybe it should be like a two project thing but uh, ultimately this is going to be where someone will come out for a matter of weeks to possibly a month plus to be at my shop uh, every day and help me build the next guild project so we thought that was a really cool way to just kind of take it to the next level um, the problem is that's a little bit less of an equal opportunity kind of situation because who the hell has the time or money to be able to just like leave their life for a month and go work with me in the shop so that should be interesting to see how that pans out. But the scholarship we're excited about because that could be anyone, uh, any place around the world and we actually have two categories being um, we wanted to specifically separate uh, young folks from people who are over 18, 19 years old. So we want to make sure we are getting a good mix of people who don't necessarily have the funds to be able to do this type of thing uh, and give them the opportunity to do it. So again, the slash scholarship is where you want to go for that. Uh, I do have a video I want to share with you. This is something I came across on Facebook. And it's an old, old school video uh, about making fishing rods the old-fashioned way. And you get to see how they sort of taper it down with hand tools into this very thin rod that almost looks like it wants to break. Uh, But obviously they know what they're doing and it doesn't. And it's uh, very very cool to see the manufacturing process back then. Uh, And they've got the classic old-timey narration. Yeah. So Roger exactly. grabs the rod and yeah. pulls it. The <laughs> what is it, it the, the power uh, tool? Gives it to the it woman operator. What <laughs> was that one that we had before from <laughs> that old safety video <laughs> yeah, or something? It's always that same guy, you know? And yeah, to the woman operator. <laughs> um, so yeah that's pretty cool you want to check that out and last thing is our friends over at Microjig are having a $15 rebate to celebrate their 15th anniversary uh, It looks like this runs through March 31st you can download and mail in the rebate form so you can pick yourself up a gripper if you've been looking at it or seeing it online it's definitely something that's good to have in the shop for those uh, tricky cuts very handy uh, but you could save 15 bucks which is a good opportunity and uh, congratulations Microjig on your 15th anniversary Good people over there, by the way, if you've never talked to the, the family behind it. I like them all.
2: That's just shocking to me that <clears throat> that's a that's a you know, a kind of a common, not commonplace, like a household name type tool now. Mm-hmm. And I've been woodworking longer than they've been around. Yeah. <laughs> that's weird. That's called Marco.
1: You know? <laughs> that's good marketing right there. That's really that weird. You could thank you could thank Bruce for that. <laughs> the guy knows what he's doing. Uh, cool. All right. Let's get into our kickback. And I think I've got a voicemail here. Uh, from Jeremy.
4: Oh, hello, Mark, Matt, and Shannon. It's Jeremy Crewall from Sydney. Uh, just uh, a further thought following Shannon's uh, discussion in the last uh, Wood Talk Online about starting handsaw uh, hand uh, cuts. One trick that I found useful, which I actually learned playing golf, was to uh, relax all your soaring hand fingers by tightening the grip on with your uh, smallest finger at, at the end. That actually lifts the toe of the saw and takes the weight off and also in, uh, creates a relaxed grip for the rest of your hand, which encourages a straight um, saw uh, push and pull and a straighter cut. Anyway, hope that's of uh, some assistance.
1: Cheers. righty. thank you so much for that, Jeremy. Uh, let's see. We I'm do confused. have confused.
2: The- so you're supposed to tighten the grip with your pinky, but relax all your other fingers. Is that what
1: he's saying? I don't know. I barely listened to it. <laughs> Quite honestly, <laughs> you lost me at handsaw. <laughs> I guess I can, can see gone. that.
2: Uh, I'm the- always a I'm always a pinky out sawer though, so oh, that doesn't sh- f- work for me. Oh, you're
1: fancy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you also have a cup of a cup of tea in the other hand as you're sawing? A nice yes. cup of Earl Grey. Uh, all right. The next one here is from Andrew. He says, "On test your farts." I mean, here's the great thing about our titling; it sometimes just forces people to use the title again in the future, which <laughs> uh-huh. is always hilarious for just general conversation. Yes. Uh, On Test Your Farts, Matt talked about making a small wooden gift box for his wife. I went to his channel and watched the video, Great Looking Box, and uh, what a great idea for giving gifts in general. Then I thought about Shannon's pen turning gift nightmare and said to myself, Self, start with one and see how it goes. I went into the shop Wednesday night and picked out the perfect piece of curly cherry and walnut. Thanks for the quiet and relaxing video, Matt. I'll send a pic when it's done. Great show, guys. Thanks for daring me to try new techniques and new projects outside of my comfort zone. Hey, right on. Cool.
2: Right on. Like to hear that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, th- this next one comes from Wolf in Germany. Wolf? He says, regarding the bubbles. No, I'm not going to do, oh, no. do it. do <laughs> it. Do it. Keep going. <laughs> here, here comes the hate mail from Deutschland. Uh, regarding <laughs> on bubbles? So, regarding in the proxy? bubbles and <laughs> that and the fact that I'm going to sound like Mike Myers on <laughs> Spockets.
1: <laughs> like a little girl.
2: Regarding the bubbles and epoxy issue, look at Peter Brown's YouTube channel. It might be helpful. He does all sorts of strange (laughs) things with epoxy, which is quite entertaining and helpful in regards to using epoxy as well. Keep up with the great
1: show. Wolf. 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 Uh, (laughs) You know, my drum instructor's name was Peter Brown. Oh, okay. He's a very weird little dude, but a great drummer. Yeah, I have no response to that. <laughs> there, There isn't one. Um, <laughs> all right, so next one is another voicemail. This is from Jason. He's got a couple of kickback items, but the last thing he has is a question, and that question will lead us into our featured topic today.
2: What? Efficient segues?
0: Never. Hey guys, what? Jason from Cincinnati. Just wanted to chime in on episode 294. And since I'm going to say so many different things about so many different topics. I'm going to try and say it as quick as I can so I don't get in trouble for too many questions at one time. (laughs) So the first thing was reference the guy that uh, wanted to know how to go from just a set of plans to kind of designing your own furniture. I agree with everything that all three of you said, which is weird, but uh, (laughs) I just want to add, first thing is um, I like to draw out my plans, and whether you sketch up or a piece of paper or a um, piece of stone and a chisel, however you decide to draw, draw it out, get an idea of what you want. The second thing I want to say is if you look at most of the plans and even most of the pieces of furniture, unless you're watching like Ellen's design challenge, um, everything is pretty much just a smaller component. You know, it's either a panel or it's a a framing panel or, you know, some, some different variation of all of those things. So if you kind of break it down like that and take the existing plans you already have and add on to it, that's probably the easiest thing. The other thing I like to say is if you build it in another medium, you know whether it's cardboard or a piece of foam or you know just build it out of pine since it's cheaper, um, that'll give you an idea of scale and also, okay, what kind of joinery do I need to use, things like that. Um, that's all I have on that. The second thing I want to add is Mark talked about um, if you don't have hair on your shoulders, you might be a woman or a boy. I would also like <laughs> to add that you might not be a werewolf. Just, just saying. Um, my actual question is that... Um, you guys talked about woodworking in America, and it reminded me that I wanted to get you guys input. Since I live in Cincinnati and yet never been to, I wanted to get your input on kind of the best way to go about that. I know they have, like, to just go to the show is, like, free or really cheap, but then if you want to get the classes, you pay for, like, a day. Does that mean you can go to all the classes or any of the classes that day? Uh, just kind of get some input from some people that have been there before, and hopefully you have a meetup. The last thing I wanted to say is, If you guys, the last, right before I turned off the radio, um, you guys were talking about the planer and the the large standalone planers versus the lunchbox planers. If you guys read that article, I'd like you to chime in and give me input on that. Because I currently own both, and I've only used the lunchbox planer, and i thought about getting rid of the standalone, because it's an older unit, and some of the things they bring up in the article I'm concerned about. So, sorry for the long message, I'm sure I'll be banned from calling, but... Hey, I appreciate
1: it. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, normally we wouldn't play that. Two minutes and 37 seconds, but it was good stuff. Uh, it has humor. We can <clears throat> it does. We let that play. Yep, exactly. Uh, <laughs> humor or an accent, you'll find, are the, the keys. I uh, haven't read that article yet. I'll make that my homework for next time. I will uh, read that plainer article and kind of get some feedback for everybody. Um, all right, so feature topic then is basically how do you do woodworking in America? Now, Woodwork in America has been around for a while. And if you are sort of, you know, the the online circles you travel bring you to YouTube primarily, you might not realize that the show's been around for a while because it seems to, we mentioned this before, that it was just in the last year or two discovered by uh, the YouTube crowd at at large, right? So uh, you may have an impression of the show I don't know, at least from some of the stuff that I saw from people that I follow, it became more of a social event, which it always has been, you know, but there is also a great learning opportunity and there's a lot more to this than the show floor. So before we get into how each of us thinks, you know, you might be uh, best serving your time when you go to the show, uh, Shannon, can you quickly review at least in the past how the ticketing system worked, what you can buy and what it gets you access to?
2: Right. And that's key because, you know, they can always change it. Although I I don't think they're going to be making any massive changes, although maybe prices, maybe, but it's always been pretty constant. Um, First and foremost, you can buy just kind of the overall ticket. And you've got access to the whole shebang, you know, marketplace floor, all weekend long, uh, all the classes. And there is no – and this this is a change from the original one. It used to be you would sign up for classes. Now it's just – you just can go to any class. There's classes going on all the time. Um it's really very difficult to actually see every single class. There's always some sort of overlap, and that's it's always been my biggest stressor with woodworking. <laughs> it's like, oh, I want to go to that, and it's like trying to figure out how to actually get in to see as much as you can. Um, but you can pop in and out. You can, you know, start attending a class and go. This guy's full of hot air and storm out. <laughs> or you can quietly leave. Or I like you know, when you do you, that. Well, that's yeah. the,
1: that's the worst when you go into a class that you're like, oh, I think this is going to be good. You sit down and you go, well, it's not so great. But you're afraid <laughs> I don't to want leave. To them. You're afraid to leave because then you hear from someone else, oh my god, this great thing happened in this class, and it's the one you just left because <laughs> right. you tried to you tried to like. Upgrade to something better. (laughs) Right.
2: So we'll just call that all access. You could could do everything. Pop in and out of classes, drop down to the marketplace. Invariably, you'll get stuck in the marketplace for longer than you imagine because you get talking to somebody and that's where the social kind of thing comes into play. There's a lot of great people. Woodworkers are great people. Um, Then you can buy just a ticket to the marketplace. And I believe they sell those like by days now too. You can buy a a ticket to Saturday's marketplace. The marketplace is only Friday and Saturday. There is no marketplace on Sunday, and Sunday is really a half day of classes too. That's usually I feel bad for the people who teach on Sunday. Watch, I'm gonna end up teaching on Sunday this year because (laughs) everybody leaves. Like everybody gets on planes, and it's like you know it's a ghost town in the Sunday classes. So. You can buy your Marketplace ticket uh, for the whole weekend or just a specific day, and that gives you full access to the Marketplace floor, lots of tools that you can try out, lay hands on, play with, talk to tool makers, talk to lots of people. Lately, there's been specific interest booths, like the YouTubers had a booth last year where you could kind of meet up with people there. Mm-hmm. Hand Tool Olympics is always a blast to, to compete or basically get an impromptu dovetailing lesson, which is pretty cool. Then there are classes. Yes, there are classes. And you can buy a ticket to one day of classes or, like I said before, the kind of all-access type deal where you can go to classes all weekend long. Uh, Classes, I think, start around 9 a.m. and they run until 5. And they're 90-minute sessions, so they're kind of going all day. Uh, overlapping left and right, uh, and the crazy thing is, is they just keep getting better. Mm-hmm. And I think what's exciting about woodworking in America is they've gotten over that hump where they have to cover like the the one hundred and one type stuff, and they're getting really specific. If you look at the last couple of years, it's like you know they're bringing Freddie Roman, and he's not talking about like federal uh, um, embellishment. He's specifically spending like ninety minutes talking about like. Uh, Baltimore and New York style Padere. It's like, holy crap, you know, that's really specific. But <laughs> what it allows you to do is really tune in on, on what it is you're interested in, mm-hmm. um, which I think is pretty cool. And they brought in some, they keep bringing in big names to teach these classes. So yeah, it's, it's exciting to see how that's developing. And And frankly, there's always, I think Mark, you can back me up on this. There's always like that, one or two classes, it's just like, holy crap, you've got to drop everything and get to that class. Yeah, there the always seems changers. to be that standout. Yep. So that's how it works. Buy a ticket and go to the marketplace or buy a ticket and go to listen to the classes.
1: Okay. So then Matt, you are relatively new. You've been to the last two which mm-hmm. oddly enough are the last – the the two that I missed, yeah. <laughs> which is weird. Uh, I heard you were going, so I'm like, I'm staying Yeah, fine. I'm sure it's what happened. <laughs> so um, your perspective on the show, first of all, what did you do? Did you go to the the marketplace floor and the classes? And uh, what did you think overall of the show?
3: So both times I got the full pass because I had to travel great distances to get there. So basically even though the, the ticket for the full thing was like 400 whatever dollars – it was. It still cost me more to get there, so it was like, well, I might as well spend all that money on the full thing and do whatever I want. Um, the classes are always fairly interesting. You know, you have a pretty good selection of what to go to or what you want to, like, see or whatever. If you're really interested in something specific, like Shannon said, you could find that probably there if you take a look at the class list, and you can see, like, hey, this sounds really interesting. This is a really specific topic that I had interest in. I want to check that out. And you can kind of bounce between whatever classes you want. The hardest part is literally like these classes are over- overlapping which one do I go to? <laughs> yeah. It's like the yeah. Hard, It's like that's the decision you have to make you're like ah uh, that's a hard one. But other than that though it's like it's incredibly fun. I had a, a blast both years. You meet so many great people and the thing that I love about it is like if I go to the grocery store and I turn to some random person and start talking to them about woodworking they probably don't care. <laughs> but if, if you're like at woodworking in America you talk you turn to some random person you have woodworking in common. You can talk to them about whatever yep. you have that, you know, it's
2: like breaking the ice is already broken. Right you now. Yeah. That, that's really true. It's, it's a pretty cool event for that reason alone.
1: Yeah. So then when we're looking at the marketplace floor and somebody who wants to save money and go to this event, I think that's where you have to have your expectations set properly. If you're expecting to have this like full experience of education, social, all that stuff. And all you did was buy a ticket for the marketplace floor. Um, you're probably going to walk away a little disappointed in it if you were expecting that full experience. The the marketplace floor is a fairly limited marketplace. It's not bad, but I think what really got me, especially this last year, was seeing feedback from some people who were so angry about like the I don't know $15 they spent what well, I don't know what the exact <laughs> price was to get to the show floor and they're so disappointed in the woodworking show aspect of it the floor and it's like you got to understand that that the marketplace is actually the icing on the educational cake that's mm-hmm. there so if your only thing that you've done is, is going to that marketplace floor and you walk away disappointed then you didn't do your research about what this event is and what the point of it is. Uh, that said, if you know that the marketplace floor is your ticket to meeting some of your favorite uh YouTube personalities and woodworking people in the industry and you want to see some products, of course, not the entire wide range of products, not every company is represented there. It is a small show, but you will see some stuff. If you go there with that expectation, the marketplace floor is gonna be awesome and amazing. But if you're flying from, you know, flying in from some other state and that's all yeah. that you set up to do, that's a little bit limited. And what you're actually going to get out of that. So I think you got to have the right expectation about what that marketplace floor is is supposed to be doing in the first place. Um, otherwise, you're just going to be disappointed.
3: They've had sessions in the marketplace too in the last couple of years, so that's a little bit of an extra little bonus there for the marketplace good. people.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I think they started.
2: I don't know if it's the same because like like Bark the the show that Matt decided to show up at was the you know that was the last time I went. It was that's it. Yeah. it's over. Carmona's there. I'm not going, <laughs> but I know they, they would have like, like addendum. Like there would be the, the, the lecture that somebody gave and then they would have like an open Q and a in the marketplace. Oh, that's um, good. Or they would do like, you know, Hey, we talked about this now come and like, try it. You know, that was where they had some of the hands on stuff. Cause mm-hmm. you could, you could make a mess down in the marketplace floor. basically.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. And if, and if the social thing is your thing, definitely you want to be there at night too. You know, because yeah, uh, that's you know, woodworking yeah.
2: in America after dark is always fun.
1: Yeah, that that is really half of the fun. And you meet the people during the day, then you make a plan for what you're doing at night, and then you have a good time uh with, with uh, some new friends at night. And again, the camaraderie is fantastic. There's there's no egos. There's no chips on shoulders. Or if there is, people kind of put them away for the weekend, and it's all about just hanging out, having a good time, and, and uh, putting a, to a face with a name, and actually meeting some of these people in person. Um, so that's definitely a vital part of the experience. Um, well, if you want to go, it's woodworkinginamerica.com. Right now, it looks like they just have like uh, information sign up for it. There's not a whole lot of information. Actually, there's no information on the page right now. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I just what went was there. The dates. Okay, yeah, you got the dates. Social media links. What what's the, what are the dates actually? I don't know them offhand.
2: September sixteenth to the eighteenth.
1: Okay, and as it stands now, the three of us are planning on going. Of course, life happens and things may change, but all three of us are planning on being there this year. So um should signed be. a contract,
2: so I'm oh, not Oh that's right. Shannon's more. gotta teach. So
1: <laughs> I gotta go now. Shannon's not gonna have any fun that weekend, but uh the rest of us will. All right, so yeah, you should go. I definitely think it's a good thing. Uh, there are other shows these days like um what is it? Handworks, right? That's mm-hmm. in Iowa, is it? That's a very very niche show, but I hear good things about that too. So the cool thing is, while you have your traveling uh the woodworking shows that that a lot of people have various opinions on uh its value, um this these niche super niche shows uh, and conventions like this, I find very, very cool, a lot of fun, and a good way to really dig deep into these topics, like Shannon said. So um, you're not going to find that level of quality teaching at something like the woodworking shows. That's a little bit more for a generic, uh, general audience, as opposed to people who really dig deep into these topics. Uh, so yeah, I, I say more of this stuff, please. Uh, all right, let's move into our voicemail. Uh, I got one here from Phil. It's about clamping pressure.
5: G'day guys. Uh, this is Phil ringing from Sydney in Australia. Um, a uh, big welcome to the new Matt. Uh,
1: Thank you. Old
5: Matt, we're really sorry to hear you go from down here. It's uh, it's a shame that your life had to move you on, but we're grateful for you, new Matt, um, and I'm personally hoping that you'll be less like the Beatles and a little bit more like ACDC in losing someone. So fundamentally a big part of the group. Hopefully you will in 20 years, still be gone, Uh, Matt. So um, very quickly, um, how hard is hard enough? Uh, I've just finished reading your book, Matt, uh, sorry, Mark, uh, on the hybrid woodworking, and I have a problem with clamping. Uh, Recently, trying to clamp up some uh, probably 12-inch panels, I've broken a couple of clamps, and I was wondering, I've with Woodworking Guild of America how they've glued two surfaces of a panel and then just sort of smeared it back and forth and then left it overnight and it's been as solid a, a join as any I've seen when they, they stress tested it or the alternate is lots and lots of clamps left, right and centre and I seem to, uh, every couple of months I'll squeeze a little bit too hard and bake one of my not so desperately expensive plants and so I'm wondering how hard is hard enough do I have to have lots and lots of pressure or can I get away with that uh, that that joint that uh, I've heard talked about uh, from Australia uh, love you guys you're brilliant and uh, inspire me every time I sit and listen to your podcast I am a member of your you mark so thank you for all the great work you do there and uh i'll see all you, well, you guys later thanks for your time and patience.
1: see ya bye-bye well thanks for that phil we really appreciate all the kind words uh so he's talking about the sort of um rubbed joint where you just kind of put pressure together rub the pieces back and forth and it kind of sucks itself together and uh, i guess wwgoa did a test with that and it proved to be adequate i haven't actually seen that video uh, but a couple things come to mind here. He's talking about clamping pressure. Have either of you ever broken a clamp? No. With clamping no. pressure. So, so I mean, he could be super, like have like a crazy awesome Aussie strength or something. You
2: that, have superpowers.
1: Yeah, it could it, be superpowers. You? But it also sounds like he even admitted that they may not be the best clamps in the world. It sounds like they may be downright cheap clamps. Uh, if they're breaking on you and you're not you don't realize you're putting like extreme amounts of pressure, your clamps really shouldn't break. I I would think you'd be denting the wood pretty severely. Like for the clamps that I have, um, Bessie parallel clamps and I've got Bessie F-style clamps, Uh, if I were to to tighten them to the point of breaking the wood would probably split or something would be very bad would happen with the wood. It would be that much pressure. So I think first of all, he's got cheap clamps. Now that said, he still probably could still use those cheaper clamps because ultimately he's probably providing a little bit too much pressure. So how much pressure is too much? So Matt, when you're doing, let's just say a panel glue up, how would you describe the amount of pressure you apply to that joint?
3: Um, I would describe it as Enough to get a little bit of squeeze out, so I I tighten them down with my hand, and then I use my two fingers to just turn it. Let me a quarter turn past that.
1: Okay. So barely any. Yeah, basically enough to close the joint for yeah. the most yeah. part, right? Anything beyond that, you're just squeezing extra glue out or denting the wood. Now, Shannon, you would do anything different from that?
2: Now, exactly the same. It's I'm usually looking for an even amount <clears throat> of squeeze out kind of all the way around the joint just to, you know, tell me that it's closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, because I'm using you know, mixture parallel clamps and F-style clamps and even some of those little squeezy, grippy type Irwin things from Home Depot. Mm-hmm. And it's the same type of thing, you know. I mean, I, I suppose I could put a heck of a lot more pressure on it, but yeah it, it, if you if you ham fist it and turn it you can put a lot of pressure on it, but usually it's just kind of a fingertip twist of the uh the- cl- uh, clamping mechanism I
3: think right. the bigger problem when you put a lot of clamp pressure like especially on a panel glue up is it tends to you'll end up like bowing the panel yeah. or doing
2: something weird to it
1: yep
3: so that's kind
2: of why i I don't really do the whole lot of clamp pressure thing because it's just and i do i do the rub joint quite a bit too, so uh you know because i yeah. I actually don't have that many clamps. So um, I'm looking, always looking for ways to uh, get away with fewer clamps.
1: Yeah, and I do that too to start it out, you know. And I will add the clamps to kind of, you know, cinch it up for the last few, you know, seconds. But as I'm getting everything together, getting it aligned, that's what helps them from slipping past one another. If I mm-hmm. don't have a, like additional alignment aids, uh, and that works great. Um, but and that's the thing; it's just a little bit of extra clamping pressure to lock it down. Um, but yeah, and I think if um, Uh, And that's the other side of the question is, is there a such thing as a glue-starved joint? And that's something that a lot of people worry about. Am I applying too much pressure and starving it? And I think there have been tests that have been done that it's almost impossible to truly starve a joint via that clamping pressure. There's always enough glue to kind of do its job there. But at the same time, just don't clamp that much. You shouldn't, you know what I mean? Like you shouldn't have to clamp it so much to even be concerned about a a glue starved joint. Yeah, I think anytime you're
2: thinking I've got to apply that much clamp, you might want to revisit the joint. Like, yeah, go back and to the board may not not be flat enough, or something is not quite right with yeah. the joinery itself. Um, you know, because anytime you're using clamping pressure to close a gap, uh, you're introducing a lot of tension and compression into the board, which may just end up failing later on.
1: Yeah, exactly. Good deal. All right. Uh, let's see. Next question here. Another voicemail from Joel.
2: Hey, guys. Uh, this is Joel LaViolette in
0: Austin, and I have a question for you. I build marimbas which is a type of musical instrument and you guys have touched on this subject in the past um about building wooden wooden things for people around the country and um the answer i remember before that you guys said was it's just really hard to do and you tend to try and build only in your area uh but for those of us that do ship our products around the country. I'm wondering if you have any other advice. Like, what can I do to make the wood uh, more stable as it's going all around the country? That was a long way of asking that question, but I love your <laughs> show. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye.
1: <laughs> all right, so stability, we've talked about this and he even mentioned it that we generally advise to try to keep your stuff local if you can. It just makes your life a whole lot easier. Uh, but if you did have to send something out and I, I'm going to, like he says, all around the country, I'm going to say like if you're making a musical instrument, let's assume it's going to travel. So even if you wanted to say, all right, I'm sending something from me to Shannon, I should probably look at the you know humidity profile of the year, where they're at and maybe even try to maybe I don't know use a humidifier in my shop to get the humidity up a little bit so I can sort of have some movement happen here so that once it ships to his place it's not that much of a drastic change you know that might be one way to, to do it but if it's going to travel from there and it's going all over the place and now you really it's it's just a crapshoot you have no idea where this thing is going to end up what can you do and I'm going to the obvious thing is build it well right build build it well allow <laughs> right. for wood movement but in some cases maybe there's only so much you can do he's talking about musical instruments is there anything else that you can do other than build it well with good joinery and good you know following the wood movement rules what can you do to stack the cards in your favor that this thing isn't going to explode at some point is there anything? You know,
2: I mean, that's what it comes down to is making sure you have accounted for that wood movement. Because the, the fact of the matter is using your, your uh, example, Mark, where, you know, injecting humidity into your shop, it's got to be – you've got to do that for a long time.
1: <laughs> the you entire know, um, project <laughs> and probably a yeah. couple weeks before. <laughs> wood
2: doesn't like change moisture content like overnight. It, I mean it, it may move a little bit, but especially if you're talking about kiln-dried wood where the cell walls are hardened because it's been baked – It it you know water sluices off it like a dry creek bed. You know it it takes some time to kind of raise that uh, to consistent moisture content. So if the equilibrium moisture content in my shop is around eleven to twelve percent, and it's probably what you know four in your shop mark or six (laughs) percent something like that. that, You know it's got to double. So yeah, there's there could be some movement there, but it's gonna happen slowly and you're going to put it on a truck and UPS or FedEx or you know Conway Freight or whatever is going to you know drive down the panhandle of Florida and up over to Minnesota and then back down <laughs> into Pittsburgh and slide into Baltimore you know so i mean it, it it's going to go through a lot of changes on the way here and it's not like it's cracking apart because it's not changing instantly as, as the temperatures change around you i think your best bet is to tell Whomever the customer, the the gift recipient, whatever. Hey, you know it might take a little bit of time to acclimate. Um, so just kind of sit it in the corner and smile at it, and don't do anything to it for a while. But yeah. if you built it well, it should make a difference, right? If it's a chair, you should still be able to sit on it. I think in um, Joel's case, he's talking about a musical instrument now. A marimba, you know, I don't know. Is your tone going to change that much if the wood? Because I mean, the, the blocks on the marimba. Are not quite that huge. Um, and I don't think they're going to move so dramatically. Plus, all oftentimes they're relieved on the underside. But, like, if you're a luthier, you know, then you've got tuning issues that happen. Yeah. Um, I used to run into this when I was still a musician, especially in Colorado, because we'd be performing at high altitudes and, like, the strings and things would go out of tune because the wood moved. Because uh, there's less tension on those strings, we'd go up to a higher altitude to perform, you know, an Estes Park, and the s- string musicians would have to spend an extra half hour tuning, um, or the storm would roll through and they'd have to retune in the middle of the concert because that doesn't take much. You know, tiny mm. little wood movement will uh, affect the tension on the strings, and now your you know cello is flat. Sure. So that's a little bit more extreme example. Um, would
1: you would you go out of your way to? I mean. At least I, this is where my brain would go. I would number one seek out species, if possible, if it works for the the confines of the project, species that are a little bit less prone to moving. And I would also seek out cuts like all quarter sawn material, if I could, mm-hmm. to help promote stable, you know, uh, as it gains and uh, loses moisture, hopefully a little bit more stability and less movement. I mean, if then sometimes that's not possible because you just can't. You know, we don't all have our own sawmills, Matt. <laughs> I don't um, either. But- You know, but it would be a little bit. Wouldn't you do that if the piece was staying in your home too, though? No, because that's the thing. Sometimes it's more expensive or it's not practical to do it. But if I were really worried about it, I might take that extra time to seek out or find a vendor who has the type of wood I'm looking for in uh, the proper cut. You know, but normally for, for something here, I don't anticipate any crazy movement issues. I would just use what's easily available. Fair, Fair enough. I don't guess don't that's
2: say. what makes the difference between a good worker, a worker and a great woodworker. <laughs> you
1: son of a gun. You sound like the, what was the, the thing I talked about with Brock? Uh, that was, oh, it was in a guild, uh, a guild live session I mentioned about how we, oh, yeah. I asked him about <laughs> using, <clears throat> using standard eight quarter to build a rocking chair. And he's basically like, look, you know, they're woodworkers. They should be able to get slaps. <laughs> that sounds like a Shannon answer. <laughs>
2: Which, by the way, and I, I was just—I was trying to picture the marimba in my head, and I just googled it real quick, and the first thing comes up
1: is a guy playing the Legend of Zelda theme on a marimba. Ooh, I'll have to check that out. Mark would be into that. That's very cool. Uh, all right, so there you go. Um, if anyone has suggestions for how you handle this, I'm sure plenty of people who listen ship their stuff across the country and then get to hear how it holds up over time. Let us know if you have any tricks—tricks uh, tricks of the trade—that help you with that. All right, let's get into our email. got quite a few, so let's try to get through these quickly. Uh, hey guys, love the show. Oh, this is by Chris, by the way. Uh, love the show. Hope you can help me here. I really like the results of Jeff Jewett's system for finishing quarter white oak and uh, for arts and crafts style furniture. The problem that I have is sealing in the dye coat. After applying the dye, I use trans tint in distilled water. I use Zinsser's de-wax shellac to seal it before applying the glaze. Every time I do this, the shellac redissolves the dye and smears it around. I then have to rework the shellac in a way that evens out the tone again. What am I doing wrong? Thanks in advance. So very quickly, the method for finishing here that gives you sort of that dark brown arts and crafts finish, uh, in the past that's sort of been compared to the fuming look that you get with like classic stickly furniture, Uh, It basically consists of a stain then you seal in that stain then you hit it with a glaze and that fills all the pores and everything gives it that old rustic sort of look and then you hit it with a top coat. So what he's doing is the sealing coat he's using uh, shellac and the problem is that dye layer is getting redissolved and it's moving around. So I did a little digging and it seems like the most recent version of Jewett's recommendation here, maybe he changed things over the course of the years, but he uses an oil-based varnish. He uses General Finishes seal cell for his sealer step now. So if you've got that layer of dye down there and you hit it lightly with a very you know, thin coat of varnish, you're less likely to move that dye around. So maybe that's the reason he switched to something oil-based because the shellac in alcohol was causing problems. Now the way to get around that is to probably spray. If you could spray that shellac coat, you're going to be able to you know, <clears throat> put a nice even layer down on the surface and not really interfere or rub. There's no rubbing going on. You're just spraying a layer on there. And then once it's sealed in, it's a little bit more robust at that point. Um, but there's one workaround uh, for you is to just use an oil-based varnish. Thin it out or use Seelacell, which is already thin. Use that on the surface and that should help lock that stain in. Now, here's another alternative for you if you really want to go with that shellac root, think about using a different dye, okay? Trans tint is just dye, and then you put it in water, that's just water. So now, once the water sort of absorbs and then, um you know, dissipates and you're just left with dye on the surface, it's very easy for things to reactivate that dye. Use a different dye, like General Finish's water-based dye. Once that's on the surface, uh, it's actually got a binder in it, which means there's a little bit of finish in there. That helps to lock that color down on the surface. So if you do hit it with the shellac, you're a lot less likely to move that color around. Um, So if you definitely want to continue with the shellac, try a different dye that has some binder in it. Uh, Again, I mentioned spraying the shellac if you can instead of uh, wiping it on or brushing it on. Um, There's a video for reference that I found on YouTube by Jeff uh, that shows this process and it's all oil-based materials at this point. So definitely take a look at that. I honestly think changing the material is probably your easiest path to fixing this problem. Um, But of course, playing with the different dyes is also a good option. That's all I have to say.
2: Right on. Okay, this question comes from Gray. He says, I figured my best chance to make it on the show was a riveting sawtooth geometry question. Oh, boy. <laughs> I like the way you think, Gray. Here it goes. I've recently gotten set up to do my own saw sharpening, and yet I noticed something strange about two of the saws I intended to resurrect. It would seem all the minutiae I've read about concerning flame rake, etc., revolve around what angle the triangular file is held between the teeth and the saw. The assumption being that regardless what the various angles of the saw's teeth may be, the right size file will always fit neatly in between them. In other words, the front of one tooth will always be at a 60 degree angle to the back of the next next tooth, which matches the 60 degrees of a triangular file. And yet, two of my saws are not this way. The tooth angle is too narrow to fit the file's shape. Am I missing something? Is this a poorly designed saw? Uh, well... My first uh, response was somebody like maybe didn't use a saw file, didn't use a triangular file to get in there and they changed the, the tooth, uh, the, the, the angle between the back of the tooth and the front of the next tooth. I wasn't quite sure if there was some sort of weird you know run of saws back in in ancient history where they did this, so I checked with a, a real expert instead of a guy who pretends to be an expert on a podcast, and I talked to Mark Harrell of Bad Axe Toolworks, and he said the only thing he knows of is the distant Acme 120, which had a 50-degree profile rather than that of a 60-degree po- profile, but... Based on what Gray is saying here with his uh, great neck and Stanley saws, that's probably not the case. And it's probably just an instance of somebody who was sharpening out, you know, I picture some old guy with, you know, maybe not, maybe, maybe not all 10 fingers and uh, (laughs) just like a a bastard file or something like that out there touching up the teeth and possibly changed it over time. So what you're going to need to do to resurrect these saws is to reshape the teeth and then go back and, and sharpen them up after that. So just rely on the c degrees of your triangular file to reshape all those teeth and start over. Have fun with that, too.
1: That sounds <laughs> like a lot of fun.
2: <laughs> all right. This one
3: is from Chris. He says, I was looking for advice on heating my shop. I'm in a two-car garage that is slightly bigger. It is not insulated, and I rent, so tearing down the walls is not an option. I currently use a propane heater, and that works really well, but I find myself gagging on the fumes from time to time. There's a natural gas line that runs through the garage, but I'm trying to find a cost-effective way of getting heat in the garage for the cold months in Indiana. So I used to use a uh, kerosene torpedo heater back in my day in uninsulated two-car garage, similar to this. And yeah, that was probably the the fumes were probably the worst part about that because you were literally standing in a room breathing exhaust. It's just like nice. just that's what you're doing. So I, I can't be healthy, and I think with with those things with with the um the, with with things that aren't vented they're really made for like not sealed spaces so you really you have to have makeup airflow into the space in order to counteract all those ridiculous fumes that are in the building with you to keep it safe um so i, I certainly would suggest anything that's vented because it's probably going to be a lot more healthy for you <laughs> regardless um if you if you can get access to the natural gas line and get some kind of natural gas heater the one I have is a forced air natural gas heater for in garages. It works fantastically. Uh, I think in the long run, natural gas is probably going to be a cheaper option for you. At least here where I live, natural gas is like dirt cheap. So it's like pretty cheap to heat my garage. Um, and the other thing too is it's probably it's going to be a lot more convenient for you because you don't have to go fill up a tank all the time. You have an endless supply of gas right there. So my suggestion for sure would be to find yourself some option that's vented And if you can get access to a net to the natural gas line, I would go for that. And if you really can't do either of those, I would look at an electric
2: heater because then you don't have to worry about, you know, exhaust from that. So that's what I've done for years now. I have a one car, so it's obviously much smaller column of air that needs to be heated. But the biggest thing I found is that even with a small like Home Depot special, I can I end up having to turn the little thermostat on it way back because it really starts to build up. <laughs> um in my garage is not super well insulated. It's much better since I since I replaced the door. But um so what usually happens is I've got to turn on the electric heater, like go down to the shop like 20 minutes before I, uh, I can actually get in there, you know, turn on the heater and then go, you know, have a sandwich or something and come back and it it just takes longer to warm the room up. Mm. Um, but I've never had a problem with like a twenty five dollar space heater.
1: Me neither. Yeah. (laughs) See, it works fine for me. All right, cool. Uh, Next one here is from Nick. He says, when applying poly, what do you use to support your pieces? If all four sides are being done, do you do it in one shot or two? This is definitely one of those it depends situations. Uh, Some panels or some project parts, the B side, like the back side, is just not that Critical, right? So if I want to finish all four sides, I'll start by applying finish to the back side. I will flip it over, put it on some simple painter's pyramids, the commercially available plastic little pyramid shaped things, and uh, then I'll finish the show side and the, the edges. And that works out really well. But if that second side is something that's visible, you have to understand that those painter's pyramids will always leave a dimple. They'll leave a dimple on the side wherever they touch. And it's not even that noticeable until maybe the after you do the installation and everything is set and done and the light hits it just the right way and you go, what is that little divot there? Oh, that's where the painter's pyramids were every time I flip that thing over, right? Uh, the other thing you got to watch out for with those painter's pyramids is if the wood species is particularly soft, the weight of the workpiece alone can actually create a divot in the wood, not just yeah. a divot in the finish, Uh, And a lot of times, just your hand pressure as you're applying the finish to the project could be enough to create those dents. So you do have to be careful with that as well. So it comes down to how important is that, the the show face versus the B side. And if it is a uh, thing where they're both very important, then you have no choice. Um, There might be other tricks that you can do and employ, but I've never done anything other than simply finish the backside first wait for that to dry enough so that it's not going to be a problem when I flip it over, put it on painter's pyramids, and then finish the show side second. And that allows you to, like if there's any drips or anything that accumulates when you do the backside, um, you have an opportunity to fix that, clean that up, and then make sure that the show side is absolutely perfect. And if there are any drips that result from that, those drips are on the B side or they expose themselves on the B side so it's not as big of a deal. Um. So it really definitely depends, but use caution when you use those painter pyramids, painter's pyramids, because they are not like a miracle thing. <laughs> They're not perfect. <laughs> uh, they can get the job done, but you got to know what the ultimate visibility of that B side is in the project.
3: Yeah, my favorite is when you flip it over and you go to finish the other side with the bottom side wet touching the, the pyramids and it starts sliding around and then slips you got, all like, over the
1: place. Yeah. And then, got, <laughs> and then
3: you got lines on the B side from the tops of the pyramids. You're like ah oh,
1: Yeah, that's that's a very good point. When you do flip it over, uh even if it is not a highly visible thing, and you can let's say you're okay with the dimples, you definitely don't want those like streaks that run across. And it, it does, it gets super slippery when you flip it over. So make sure however you're applying the finish on the good side, um, make sure you're doing it in a way that doesn't cause a lot of <laughs> lateral motion because they will just slide right off. <laughs> low, low, low pressure application methods. <laughs> yeah, doubt <laughs> about it and actually
2: at the same time if you're using a finish that tacks up really quickly like uh, a really thinned out shellac or something like that Mm -hmm. (laughs) like do that piece and flip it immediately don't like do all your pieces then come back and flip them because that shellac will start to tack up then you flip it over and it actually sticks to those pyramids (laughs) right (laughs) and then instead of getting a dimple you get like this like nasty like wrinkled torn section where it actually sticks and tears away some of the already tacked Mm -hmm. shellac it's kind of like when you go oh is that drying it touch it with your finger and you leave a fingerprint in it
1: like, see now if I were using a quick dry finish I wouldn't even bother like I would just yeah. let it let it dry give it an hour two hours flip it over and then do the other side it just sounds cool. like too much of a risk to even well bother. that's what I do now <laughs> now that I've learned <laughs> cool sounds good
2: where are we here
1: uh, well if there's silence it's probably you
2: okay yeah that's me this is from John he says, is it standard practice when gluing up a panel to have all your grain running in the same direction? I haven't been doing this lately, and I've been running into issues like tear out when I go over it with a plane. Hmm. Um I don't think there is such a thing as standard practice in woodworking, <laughs> John, um because what you're talking about if if like probably one of the most popular ways to if you've got like a resawed something and you make a panel is to book match it, right? You know, flip that apart and get that cool kind of mirror effect. Well, guess what <laughs> those boards are now going in opposite directions, so. You know, and one might say that book matching is a standard practice when it comes to making a panel. So, no, there isn't. It is something that you should be aware of, though. Um, you know, recognize if you do that book match. guess what? You're going to have a little bit more trouble in dealing with that. You know, you can plane one half the panel one way and one half the panel the other way. But that seam in the middle, you might have to grab a card scraper or a really, really sharp plane with a really, really light cut Um But there are other instances where you're not going for a specific aesthetic look. Pay very close attention to that. I was making um, uh, uh, dust shelves uh, in a blanket chest the other day that were essentially – they're made out of poplar. I mean, it was all secondary wood. It wasn't going to be seen. And I started to like mark out the joiner, and it occurred to me, oh, wait, this grain's going to go, it's going to make it difficult for me to plow the groove in here because the grain's going the wrong direction. So I had to like stop and remark everything um, so that I didn't make my life difficult because um, it didn't matter. It mm-hmm. didn't matter, you know, what it looked like uh, because it was just going to go inside the case. So do pay attention to that and recognize that you're making a compromise if you me, want it to look pretty, you know, for aesthetics. <laughs> You know, you just got to have to deal with the consequences of that.
1: Yeah, and this isn't even something that's isolated to to hand tools either. Uh, on no. this uh, bed project, I've got these big three and a half or three and a quarter by three and a quarter legs. So two pieces of eight quarter had to go together. Now it's kind of in a rush, and what you know, it's all cherry. It all looks good. Direction really didn't matter that much, other than what's exposed on the end grain. So I ran a couple of them where the grain direction actually was going in different directions, and even with uh, you know good planer blades and good um, good blades on the jointer when I reworked those boards as a whole with the two pieces together, one's running one way, one is going the other way, and then as I put it over the jointer, I get tear out on one of the boards, but not the other board, right? <laughs> and it just it that's what just happens sometimes. And if I would have paid attention and determined the grain direction, I could have actually prevented that because it wasn't super critical what the, the grain was doing visually. It's a matter of which direction was it running, and if I put them the same way, I would have had a much smoother end result in that, that final work piece.
2: Keep in mind, some species... It, you won't even – it'll look like a great joint until you put finish on it yeah. and that grain going in different directions will yep. reflect light differently. Yeah. And suddenly you're like, holy crap, yeah, there's you got the blue a blue line. You got you know? a
1: two-tone appearance to it.
2: Yeah, that happens a lot with legs like you're talking about, Mark, where yep. it's like, oh, it's all riffs on and one of it's maybe moving the wrong way and it looks great. And then I put on that oil and it's like, hey,
1: look at that. Yeah, they look <laughs> you like glued two-
2: four pieces together to make that leg. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> Comes a little bit of an eyesore. Sorry, Matt. All
3: right, Matt. Last one here is from Scott. It says, hey, guys, I'm fairly new to woodworking, and I absolutely love my new hobby. I've been building a lot using construction-grade lumber to reduce on costs and get a rustic look. However, my biggest frustration is how unstable my projects turn out because of working with roughly milled wood. I don't have a ton of money to drop on a joint or a planer, so are there alternatives to getting my wood more flat and square? Um, so if you're using construction-grade lumber, I think – the biggest thing here, especially when you're talking about stability is most of the time that stuff is not even near dry enough to actually use right away in your projects. Mm. And one of the things you can do with, with that tier in your favor is you can actually dry them a little more and have them dry flat in a sense. So you could actually, you know, stack them and sticker them somewhere that has a nice flat, stable base, put a lot of weight on top of them and let them dry for a few weeks or um, even a month, maybe not that long, but at least a few weeks get them down a little bit in the moisture content. And because you have the, the weight on them, you're forcing them into a flat uh, position, essentially they should stay a lot more flat and you'll probably end up with more stable projects in the long run. Um, if you're looking to get it actually milled up there, um, other than like the alternatives we talked about, if you don't have a joint or a planer, there really isn't a whole lot of options either other than bring it to somewhere that has those things there that could do it for you, but definitely try drying it out a little bit first. And, um, Holding it all flat should help a little bit, at least.
2: Do you do you add air circulation, Matt, when you do that type of thing?
3: Uh, it depends how and big I I my did, stack is.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of the construction lumber is probably sitting around 18%, something like that, I guess, Oh know. at least at least. Yeah. I don't know how much air you would have to I'm I'm used to injecting air when you're talking about green, you know, and mm. you, you've got some of the free water out, but it's still sitting at thirty, thirty five percent. You know, air flow is a huge deal just so things don't mold. I just I yeah, never try it. Wouldn't, tried.
3: It wouldn't it wouldn't mold. I think it's too it's too dry to mold, but I mean if you want it to go faster, throw a fan on it. it doesn't yeah. hurt. True. I
1: yeah, I guess this also might be regionally dependent but for me whenever I get any kind of construction lumber there are times where maybe I need a board that is for a jig or something like that like a I don't know a flattening router jig and I want a couple of rails so I'll get a couple of good you know kiln dried two by fours from Lowe's or Home Depot uh, mill them up on the jointer nice and flat within a day or two those things start to twist and go all out of whack on me. So again, I don't know if it's because it's so dry here and the lumber is being shipped in from elsewhere and it still dries even more uh, once it gets here or the quality of the lumber to begin with in this area just isn't that great. But I like, I would never want to use that stuff in a project just because it's, it's, it's sinister it's evil well you know you can it's you possessed. can pay
2: some attention to like the ingrain of like a stud but studs tend to be cut out of smaller trees yeah. you know so they've got a much more radical curvature because mm-hmm. the, the you know the radius of the trunk itself is so much smaller so you're talking about all kinds of reaction wood you know you you bought you've cut that stud you know one saw slice away from the pith or the pith is right smack in the middle of the board, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you have a boxed heart two by four. But yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just because studs are meant to be, you know, <laughs> thrown inside inside wallboard. You know, yeah, they're not exactly. meant to be seen. They're not. They don't need to be stable because they're hammered into submission. So. Yeah, you cut studs from whatever you have lying around. Well, see, middle.
1: and that's part of the trouble here. When you're starting out and you want to use inexpensive material, um, you're also at a point in your growth as a woodworker where you, you really need success the most to encourage you yeah. to keep going. So mm-hmm. so it's almost this um, a negative... Uh, cycle in a way where you're buying this stuff because that's what you can afford or what you can justify hacking away at as you learn, but then the end result is unstable and not not a great result. So you are like sort of disappointed in what you got out of it, you know. And there's a certain breaking point where you have to draw the line and say, "All right, I'm done with this. I'm going to buy inexpensive but decent quality hardwood." And start moving forward with that. And now your results will be truer. You know, the, the effort you put into it will equal what the quality is on the other end. The thing with the construction grade, no matter what your effort is going in, because the wood itself might be predetermined to be poop, the end result is just crap. And all the work you put into it is nullified because the wood decided to do something it was going to do anyway. You know, so I think it's 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 very tricky for people when they're first starting out, uh, trying to find that balance and knowing when to pull the trigger to get better quality lumber.
3: Yeah, I think that the difference or the one thing you can keep in mind is that construction grade and furniture grade are there as grades for a reason. It's not just the appearance of the boards. Mm-hmm. It's how, what's they're what's intended for their use. Yeah, yeah for So sure. something to keep in mind with that as well.
1: Yep. All right. Well, if you like what you hear and you want to support our show, you can. Just go to woodtalkshow.com. Look over in the side column for our donation links any little bit helps out we appreciate it and you could head to twwstore.com and pick yourself up a Wood Talk t-shirt which if you're listening like live or, or in the you know current time that this episode was published the store is actually partially closed and the uh, shirts are not available at the moment but in a couple of weeks everything will be back up and running my mom's actually out of town for some family stuff so uh, store closes when mom leaves it's just how it works <laughs> uh, we're too lazy to, to ship all that stuff ourselves uh, if you want to you could leave us an iTunes review what's that? Busy. Uh, Nicole says busy. I thought lazy. <laughs> <laughs> Semantics. They're very similar words. I got confused. Um, <laughs> you can look us up in the iTunes store. Click on ratings and reviews and uh, give us a sweet five star rating, just like James Blonde oh 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 one did. Uh, it says an easy subscribe here. These guys are awesome and have a lot of knowledge between them. I'm playing catch up, listening to the early shows as well as the current ones. Well, thank you very much, James Blonde oh 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 one. Uh, and you know what, Shannon, normally we have you read the closing uh, stuff, contact information and whatnot, but we had Chester who called in and uh, has a, a sub- substitute version for you. It's kind of a long voicemail, but uh, we'll let this close us out. Hey, fellas. <laughs> hey, this is Chester. Good from
6: in deep in the heart of, uh, well, deep in the heart of Illinois. The only uh, train features we got out here is overpasses, so... It's not deep in the heart of too much, but hey, hey, uh, I've been Jonesing just like uh, Shannon was about doing this here uh, end of speech. You know that little speech he gives at the end for contact information. It's kind of funny. I, I've been Jonesing about too, 'cause my next-door neighbors are Joneses too. <laughs> but anyways, hey, just let you know, it's hit my little office. You know, if you go to iTunes, just don't forget to give us a big old star right there. That way, the people can get to know us. A little bit better and get us out there so more people can find us. Hey, if you need to, make sure you, you can read, it, you know, read us on Skype. I'm not sure what Skype is, but by the way, you can reach us right there on Wood Talk Online or you can reach us on our voicemail at 623 242 And last but not least, we cannot forget about the woodbridgebird.com, right. or <laughs> that's about all I said. I'm going to that But uh, you have a good day now. If, it, if you want to pay somebody for something or other or not, well, you can just, uh well, I just hope you got a chuckle out up, and that's all. Y'all be good now, you hear?
1: Know? See ya. Uh-huh. I, I honestly have no idea Jeez. what just happened. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty awesome and that's pretty crazy. terrible at the same time. Oh, yeah. Good that stuff. Out a contract. Sign him up. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think we've invited this uh sort of voicemail with our, uh some of the ones we played in the past. But hey, you know what? We we'll, we we'll, we are not too proud. We'll take every voicemail that is sent to us. Uh all right. Well, thanks for listening everybody and we'll catch you next time.
2: See ya. Goodbye.